Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my full, wonderfully meandering, unedited conversation with Episcopal priest, public theologian, and preacher-writer Barbara Brown-Taylor. You'll find a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's Krista. Krista Tippett. It's Barbara Taylor. I'm so glad to meet you. You know, I thought all these years that our paths would actually cross with bodies on. Um, And they never have. Yeah, I thought they would briefly when the dean had an advisory board, but every time I was there, you weren't, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think I was an especially bad participant. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, yeah, no, I, I've always just, I've always known that we'd do this one day, and this just seemed to be the day. So I'm really happy mm-hmm. that you, that you can make time. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, and it also sounds like you drove a long way for us, so we're grateful. Well. This is, I'm much more uh, calm here than I would have been at home waiting for something to yeah. tear us apart. So this is good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit late. I was having printers. Oh, no, no, issues. take your time. Take, okay. I've been enjoying sitting here. And plus, GPB is like my Disneyland. I just love oh, being Oh, is that here. where you are? Yeah, because I'm always hearing it at the broadcast oh, wow. end. But to be in the studios is just wonderful fun. You do it all the time, but I'm not used to it. Yeah. I love GPB, too. Okay. Are we, Chris, do do you need anything else? No. See, we don't even have to do sound checks anymore. The world has changed so much. I was wondering, nobody made sure I was three inches from the microphone and that my spit guard was in place. (laughs) However, my voice is going in and out on this, so it doesn't bother me. But, um, Victoria, if you're listening in, this is in and out. Um, I can hear my, I, yeah, I can hear myself clearly, then I can hear myself muffled or not at all, then I can hear myself clearly. Okay. I don't know what talkback is. No. Oh, then I should just kind of... No, no, it's fine. It's All right. Fine. I was just asking you if you could adjust your mic. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was giving you this cue. Where do you want it? But I'm about... Then i got to come closer because this won't... And these chairs don't move. Yeah, do you know that? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Even I'm Disneyland has its discomfort. <laughs> Thank goodness I do not know from personal experience. (laughs) I don't. I want you. I don't want you to have your voice going in and out. So, yeah, I would just like. I mean, I can adjust, but it's nice if it just stays the same. Then you'll be thinking about things you. I don't want you to be thinking about. Okay, I'm thinking about. Our conversation. (laughs) 
Is, is it resolved now, do you think? I think so. Okay, good. All right. But if it, if you, if you start, if it starts being distracting in any way, speak up mm-hmm. and we can pause and get it right. Okay. Okay. Lovely. I bet you can hear stomachs rumbling on this. Yeah, Chris can hear everything. Uh-huh. He has supersonic hearing. <laughs> it's a, yeah, mm-hmm. and you have sensitive ears. Okay. Um, oh, I know what. Do, do you is do we have a hard stop at? No. Okay. All right. Great. Well, lovely. Um, I'm glad to be with you again. Um, and you know, as I started um, delving in, I kept seeing this word peregrination show mm-hmm. up. From across the years, um, which I guess I kind of looked it up, and it has, it comes from the Latin to live or travel abroad, but it's really kind of a meandering journey, which mm-hmm. felt like good framing for your life and faith and callings, and also, you know, the evolution of religion and religiosity and God in the course of your lifetime and mine, and, and especially in this century. Um, which is also something I, you know, kind of I want to want to draw you out on. So, um, so literally, <laughs> you had a peregrinating. But there was a lot of peregrination in your childhood. It looks like you moved nine times before you were in ninth grade. That's true. A lot of moving around. Yeah. Um, and then, in terms of the religious background of the world you grew up in. Um, God was officially dying. Mm-hmm. That's true, and I was at the place where that was happening because I went to Emory College, not while Tom Altizer was there, but I don't think they've gotten over him yet. And Tom Altizer, did he, he, did he write that Time magazine piece? Or He was featured in it. I don't know that he right, wrote he it, but he was certainly on the, the cover. The 1966 cover of Time magazine, and it's... It's probably really hard for somebody who's been born in the last 20 years to imagine how shocking and momentous it was <laughs> for Time magazine to have God is Dead on the cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your parents also feels like they were also really encouraging you into libraries rather than to church. <laughs> so they were part of what the phenomenon that was being described? Yes, and... I was their firstborn child, and I was sort of a an offering to my Catholic grandmother who wasn't happy her son had married a Methodist from College Park, Georgia. So I was baptized in the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church, which meant it couldn't happen in the real church. It was in a side chapel. Uh, it was a pretty bad experience, especially for my mother, who apparently took me back from the priest, looked at my father and said, we're getting out of here and we're never coming back. Mm. And they never did. Mm. So, so that, uh, I think, I think they were each in reactions of their own. It took me a long time to realize they were people and not just my parents and that they had parents and they came from religious histories that were painful to them both in different ways. So they decided to protect their children from that. Yeah. 
But interestingly, it seems that you were not deterred or frightened by God's death. You kept, I don't know, what you were, you were looking for something. You kept investigating church. And um, how, how do you think about what you were looking for, what you were searching for? Oh, there's so many answers because mm. in high school I was looking for friends and mm. all my friends went to churches went and to wanted church, me to yeah. go with them to churches. So that was the belonging stage. And and after that, it was mostly realizing I hadn't found it yet. <laughs> so it was mostly a sense that I was being drawn to a place with people I cared about, but what I was looking for wasn't there. So what was I looking for? Mm -hmm. Some sense that I was being told the truth about the way things really were. And instead, I think I often found caricatures or w warnings about the way things were. Um, especially as a young person, a lot of people lobbying for my soul, yeah. both denominationally and theologically. So it took me till my middle year of seminary to walk into a church in downtown New Haven and feel like I was home. Though now when I look back on it, it was like Hogwarts. I mean, I can't believe that's what I fell in love with, but I did. <laughs> you mean that church? That high, high yeah, Episcopal yeah, yeah. church? Yeah, very high. You know, with, <laughs> with I think no women even in the, in yeah. the choir. Yeah. <clears throat> Lots of um, what do they, they say? Bells and smells and all of that. The, all the all the high ritual. Um, it's I, I love this story about. I mean, it sounds like you kind of again you were on this wandering exploration and you you went to many kinds of churches and then the story about when you landed in this Episcopal church in your mid twenties and the priest who said to you when you went to talk to him about this, he said, Deary, you are an ecclesiastical harlot. <laughs> Let's be sure you're really in love this time. <laughs> yes, and though he has passed on to his blessed rest, I hope that he knows I did. I stayed faithful <laughs> in my way. Yeah. <laughs> you were. You were in love, and you were eventually ordained a priest. Um, and, you know, your book, um, Leaving Church, is one that— um, a lot of people read, and I like the structure of that book, which is in three parts, finding, losing, and keeping, which also feels like a good framing for this, mm -hmm. for this kind of journey, not just that you've been on, but that we're on as a culture. Um, and uh, something you wrote, so you, so you were an, or you were an ordained minister, you were a priest. When I first heard about you, when I was in divinity school. In the mm -hmm. early 90s, you were this famous preacher, right? Like <laughs> the greatest preacher. <laughs> and um, and you were still in, in, yeah, you were still in parish ministry at that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that intrigued me that you wrote about um, leaving parish ministry in 1997, then you became a college religion teacher. And I want to hear what you—I want you to, un, to kind of um, unfurl this for me. You, you said that moving from church to classroom was the beginning of my theological humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, well, it, um, it, it was a surprising move. You got it right, though. I'm really happy you understood leaving church meant leaving parish ministry because I got many consolation notes— 
shortly after that, offering to help me find my way back to God. And I said, nope, don't need help with that. Just needed a vocational change. But what it meant was leaving a church where I was solo pastor. I had special vestments I put on. I had a time when I got to talk and nobody else talked. I had a parking spot. Um, and as many titles as I wanted to grab, but to move into a college situation where there was not even a religion department, but that came under the Department of Humanities, Mm -hmm. meant that literally I walked to the door of my new office and it said, Barbara Taylor, Department of Humanities. And I thought, that is such a long ways from being a master of divinity, <laughs> master of you know, divinity, w- right? with some miles on the odometer, and and <laughs> and I had no special clothes to put on. I didn't even know how to dress, and I stood yeah. in front of a chalkboard, and I had a lectern instead of an altar. And the most distressing thing was to find my language didn't work anymore. You know, right. the plural, the plural. We we believe we're called. We are here because we've come to baptize this child. Will all you who, you know, all my language was gone. So it was a great time in my life to reinvent, uh, though I'm very happy students didn't know that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, yeah, I will say, you know, having gone to, 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 to the same seminary, Divinity School, that you attended, Yale Divinity School, I remember it was, you know, this is, kind of backing up what you're describing, that, you know, there's this seeing people who I just knew as people, and then at some point after the day of ordination, they put on those vestments and those collars <laughs> and suddenly were transformed into spiritual leaders. And I realized that everybody meeting them ever after would, because of the vestments, right, because of the all of that that you describe, um, what you wore, um, would automatically understand them to be spiritual authorities. And it was a little bit scary in some cases, right? (laughs) It should have been scary. You and I both knew those people. Okay, it was really scary. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, though, the experience of ordination with the laying on of hands and actually the laying of a mantle around your neck, you know, with a stole, the weight of community uh, was noticeable. And and it finally, if there was any good change in me, it was the community that changed me. I didn't come in changed, but there's something about realizing, again, that the language was not mine. It was the community's language. And I don't know, I worked with, among, and for them. There were awful parts about that and really um, transcendent parts about that. Right. Um. One, Excuse me. one of the things you wrote about um, one of the about te- teaching something that that came to you said the the great gift and you 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 pointed at this a minute ago the great gift of the unbelievers in class well a couple of things you said the students in my class who distanced themselves from religion often knew more about the faith they had left behind than the students who stayed put without question. Mm-hmm. And then you said the great gift of the unbelievers in class was to send me back to my historic vocabulary list to explore its meaning in the present, that you now had to translate, as you say, things that were were said ritually. Um, and what this, um, what this th- makes me think of is something that's been on my mind in the last couple of years, um, 
which is not what you were talking about then, but bringing that into the present, I, I am having this experience that theological and liturgical language and practices, at the same time that we can tell a story of churches emptying out, that, that theological and liturgical language and practices feel more resonant for the world we inhabit than ever before. And I'm thinking of confession and repentance and lamentation and redemption. Um, and so and so I I'd love to and 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 also I feel like what I see from where I sit in terms of all the energies and curiosity around this part of life, this religious and spiritual part of life, this life of faith, is so much more complicated and richer than the phrase uh, spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been offended by the category of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because it sounds like a null set. I don't know if this was what you're talking about, but the whole way for many years that people who were embedded in church communities dismissed the spiritual but not religious as yeah. being frivolous, non-committed individualists who just wanted, you know, to design their own religion. And and now, lo and behold, it turns out they're really part of an evolution we're in the middle of. And it's, uh, I, I, I hope we find a, a word better than nuns to describe them, not only because they're now 30% of the U.S. population. Yeah, N-O-N-E-S. yeah. Well, part of the reason, I mean, that word is not is destined not to be profound because it emerged from a mm-hmm. pew, a poll, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, <laughs> it, 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 the context in which it was formulated is lacking. Mm-hmm. And unaffiliated is not very lovely, is it? We'll have no. to find something else. the the para, The peregrinators, the peregrines. <laughs> yeah, is that what the category you'd like to recommend? I don't know. I think they'll think up their own names, and yeah. I hope there'll be a lot of them, a lot of different ones, because, again, the N-O-N-E-S is a category that includes a bunch of people who are very different from one another yeah. as well. Yeah. There was, in the beginning of the section of Leaving Church, you have a quote from Teilhard de Chardin, which I really loved. Um, what we are all more or less lacking at this moment is a new definition of holiness. Mm-hmm. And it almost felt to me like that's a good, that's a better descriptor of the search mm-hmm. that is on. Mm-hmm. I don't know where does that where does that where does that language of a new definition of holiness take your theological imagination right now? It takes me in so many directions. I, I realize as we speak, I'm writing down things on the paper ahead of me. Mm-hmm. I'll wind that back a minute. As we speak, I'm I'm thinking of things like. Uh, my age and the region in which I live and the ways in which holiness is used where I live, it's most often in terms of Pentecostal holiness churches. <laughs> so right. that that would be the, you know, the free association for that. And yet the hunger for holiness in terms of a sense of being rooted, grounded in shifting ground— hmm. Which oddly means that to be, to be what? To be holy is to keep one's balance while the earth moves under our feet. 
there's there's a lot. I, you know, I would love to play with that word for the whole rest of our time, but but I I like it much better than religious or spiritual. Mm-hmm. But to be a seeker after the sacred or the holy, mm-hmm. which ends up for me being the really real, yeah. but not just yeah. not just the materialist really real, but the really real that's got layers all the way down. Yeah. Did you what study with Leander Keck at at YDS, by the way? I didn't study with him, but he hired me as he a did. development. A de, yeah, I had a short failed career as a development officer <laughs> in the early 80s, so he was the dean. Oh, when he was dean. Hired well, I yeah. just this is totally an aside, and we'll cut it out, but I— yeah. um, he used to talk about the really real in a way. That, that's, that's another thing. Unfortunately, we'll do another hour on the really real sometime. Okay. <laughs> um, and, yeah, go on. No, that's in the eye of the beholder, I think, the really mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to kind of walk through, as I was you know, reading through your work and your writing and interviews you've done across the years also, just finding, um, you know, what you said, what you, what you had written about going from the church to the classroom or um, uh, sending you back to the historic vocabulary for its meaning in the present. And, of course, that present you were talking about in the 1990s was different from ours. Um, and one of the pieces of theology that you um, invoke again and again is is this notion of incarnation um, mm-hmm. a spirituality and a theology that a spirituality that is embodied um, in the in your book altar in the world you titled the chapter about incarnation the practice of wearing skin <laughs> uh, you've talked about the daily practice of incarnation of being in the body with full confidence that God speaks the language of flesh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what came up quickly and clearly for me was no longer standing up to speak in a community that shared a language and spoke it with some coherence back and forth, also some lively variation in what they meant by all those multisyllabic theological words, but then all of a sudden to be in a college classroom with students of many faiths and no faiths, um, to whom it meant little next to nothing. When I compare the teaching of world religions, which was full of practices, dance and music and body decoration yeah. and mandalas, and, and, and going from that to intro to Christian theology, it was like going from... <laughs> a festival to a cemetery in terms mm. of ha- where the body just vanished. It all went up into the head to to figure yeah. out whether our ontology fit with our eschatology and, you know, whether our our doxologies were adequate. It just, it was, uh, it was a big challenge for me to either stop using the language or find a way to put skin and flesh on the language. And I've kept that through the years. Um, I'm a champion of body language when speaking of the holy, which for some people is counterintuitive because they've been taught the body has nothing to do with what is holy. Um, But I beg to differ. Yes. You 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 wrote about the Christian reverence for the body, the neighbor's body, the leper's body, the orphan's body, the Christ's body, 
the clear charge to care for the incarnate soul. And these days, more and more for the body of the tree and the body of the mountain and the body mm. of the river. And I think that, you know, that train pulled through the station a long time ago with people like um, Sally McFaig at Vanderbilt, lots of people who did ecological work that now has a new fire under it, that if we don't take the body of this earth seriously, it will no longer be our host. Yeah. It's also this, um, the the fact um, that what we have referred to as body and what we've referred to as emotion and spirit, um, that those things in fact are completely physio- entangled, right? That, I mean, we know this now in a way we didn't even know this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's true. I just listened. This will be highly inappropriate. You can take it out, too. But I just listened to Lady Gaga sing at the Academy Awards. And that woman sings from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And as soon as she started belting out that song, I had this rush, this physical rush that went head to foot. And I think it was awe. I don't know what that was. Mm. Mm. It, It was certainly amazement at the full embodiment of her purpose mm. in community at that moment. So there, the Academy Awards just made it into our talk. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, I also just love this language. You said, here, you said, here we sit with our souls tucked away in this marvelous luggage, mostly insensible to the ways in which every spiritual practice begins with the body. Mm-hmm. Our bodies have shaped our views of the world just as the world has shaped our views of our bodies. You've been thinking about that for a long time. And again, it's science is meeting it now. Mm. Hmm. Oh, thank you. That made me sound ahead of the time. I don't think I was <laughs> – I've always felt way behind. So that's <laughs> you live long enough, the circle comes around again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> You know, when we talk about theological language, I I was mid-20s when I discovered it, largely in seminary, and then it was the most wonderful thing I had ever discovered. Mm -hmm. It was like a field guide, and somebody had given me a book with the names of things that I had experienced, but I didn't know there were these names for them. And so it was kind of a gift of language, along with a community that spoke the language, and And so it was a kind of taxonomy of holiness. Late in life, that same language often feels to me like a seatbelt, like it's trying to keep me in a car. I want to get out of the car. I want to get my feet on the ground. But the language keeps saying, no, 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 here are the boundaries of the the taxonomy. You know, I just want to start all of a sudden now saying, look, bird with white spots on it and some red. Instead of going to my field guide to see what the bird's name is, how long its right. wings are, what it weighs, right. where its migration patterns are. So yeah. I, I guess in other contexts, I've talked about the rewilding that happens. The re- after yeah, a while. I want to talk about wilderness. I definitely want to get mm-hmm. there. I mean, what are some of those other, if just what, are, what, what comes to mind if you think about that taxonomy that you learned that was a gift? And I also had that experience studying theology. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like this these riches that had been hidden away, even though I went to church three times a week <laughs> growing up, you know. What tradition were you in? Uh, Southern Baptist. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Well, yeah. my home, that's where I live, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as you spoke about it earlier, about the appropriateness of the language for a lot that is going on now in the headlines, if not mm-hmm. in churches. But mm-hmm. I, where I live, the language is either what, like, the, the language is required or it's rejected. I mean, the, the language, even if it fits right now with a lot of people I'm in community with, will not be used because of the abuse associated with it in the past, even some mm-hmm. of the good language, you know. Mm-hmm. If we want to talk about good language and bad language or frightening language and redemptive language, to put one of the words in there, but I'm yeah. really, I spend a lot of time with people who don't want anything that sounds like the church they Mm-hmm. were hurt in. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things when you when you talk about incarnation and the body, it it also does come it also is a dimension that 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 brings us to suffering, right? Or suffering comes through the body. Um you somewhere you said um Deep suffering makes theologians of us all. And you said the questions people ask about God in Sunday school rarely compare with the questions we ask while we are in the hospital. Mm-hmm. This goes for those stuck in the waiting room as well as those in the hospital beds. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I was never good at hospital calls because I was pretty sure I knew why I was there, but it meant offering to pray, preferably from the Book of Common Prayer, and that never seemed to me like what was called for once I was in the room. Mm. And quite often, if I would sit there quiet long enough, I don't mean to be a a bummer here, but what people would get around to saying is how odd it was that they did not feel the presence of God, hmm. that in, in their hardest hours they felt abandoned. Hmm. And, and that called for a different kind of prayer. But, you know, but uh, again, it, it was, that was probably the point at which my theological training um, required me to learn how to be an improvisational holy person. Hmm. And and that called for as much creativity as I could come up with, but mostly not many words. Hmm. Whatever that says about the theological language, nope. It, it was better to rub someone's feet or just sit and breathe together. But then yeah. I always wondered if I was doing my job. <laughs> You've written so interestingly about about prayer. Um, uh, you had a, you had a chapter on prayer in Altar in the World, and I noted that in the first few pages you said you wrote these different things. I know that a chapter on prayer belongs in this book, but I dread writing it, and I am a failure <laughs> at prayer. And I would rather show someone my checkbook stubs than talk about my prayer life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good role model, Krista, but I'm representative. <laughs> Somewhere, though, and this was more positive, I think you said, when pe- sometimes when people ask me about my prayer life, I describe hanging laundry on the line. Mm-hmm. Or all kinds of things. Uh, hanging laundry on the line like their prayer flags and thinking of the people whose laundry it is. 
and and being grateful to the wind for blowing it around. And then going from that to filling a horse trough with water so that these great big vegetarians, you know, can get something to drink during their days. Mm. But but it, it, thank goodness for people like Brother Lawrence, you know, in Christian religious tradition or others who found their vocations in kitchens and sweeping. Mm-hmm. Brother or, Lawrence, the practice, what a, the, the mm. practice of the presence of God, which yeah. I think washing dishes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was, he said it was, yeah, enough to flip a pancake for the love of God. Yeah. Because he cooked for his um, monks. I think he always was a brother and never went above being a lay brother. But thank goodness for him and others like him who at least carved out a wedge, you know, in the Christian pie for those who did the most ordinary things in the world with reverence, or at least with some awareness that reverence was possible in the most ordinary things on earth. That's and, that's where yeah. I live. And I think that language, also that word reverence, um, which is sometimes connected to the notion of sacrament, you know, that does feel like language to me, especially the word reverence that is inviting, mm-hmm. you know, even even to a modern secular mind um, that feels like a, a, no, a word and a thing we might be missing. I think you're right. It's an attractive word, like holy. Mm-hmm. I, those two are not in the rejection pile that okay. I talked about <laughs> earlier. The, the catch with reverence is I think I am also um, in this category is we want reverence that brings us into the presence of something greater than ourselves, which is the the bottom line definition. These days when people tell me they don't believe in a higher power, it occurs to me weather is a higher power and that there there are many things around us beyond our control that are greater than we are. But but I think reverence is attractive particularly to people who want that to be a beautiful awe, a beautiful Mm -hmm. reverence. And frankly – what we were talking about a moment ago, a hospital room will bring you into the presence of something greater than you are. <laughs> you may not feel reverence in that moment, but so many of the experiences that have increased my reverence have been ones that reminded me how small and temporary and woundable I and all my fellows are. So, you know, there are also a great many experiences like like wilderness, like lostness, like... Um, Fear that can also end in reverence. Excuse me, lost my voice on that one. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know where you'd like to pick that up. Um, that's okay. Just we don't. let it go. Yeah, we yeah. It's a real conversation, and mm-hmm. people lose their voices in the middle of sentences in real life. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. The, so I think let's this the notion of wilderness. Um, feels really important to you, and it feels to me that it's become more and more important to you um, in Altering the World. You called it the practice of getting lost. Um, and But I saw this, um, this talk you gave at the Evolving Faith Conference in 2019, and maybe just to say a little bit about, you know, we talked a minute ago about this kind of inadequate description of a lot of people as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, defining people by by what they don't have, even mm-hmm. even kind of connoting a nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but for example, evolving faith, there's this deconstruction movement that is kind of post-evangelical. Um, people around the edges of of the of the of the tradition and of different denominations, um, and evolving faith is such an interesting group. And Jeff Chu uh, was on. We had I interviewed Jeff Chu for on being. Um, I think it was you know a year a year or so ago, um, and Rachel Held Evans was part of that kind of movement conference. So so here you are. What would this be? Twenty years on from leaving parish ministry, kind of yourself as, as an Episcopal priest, um, and in a very different way, and yet kind of stepping outside, stepping beyond the, the established boundaries of the tradition. Even even as what was within those boundaries remains so defining for you, mm-hmm. um, and so you're talking to these largely younger people, and 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 it is such a mix of post-evangelical or people who are still kind of keep trying to keep one leg in the tradition, or or have been raised with not very much and know this. I love that phrase used a little while. This hunger for holiness. Um, mm-hmm. And you ended up talking to them about wilderness. So, I mean, just maybe just take me back to thinking about, you know, the the conference you were going to and the title Evolving Faith and how the notion of wilderness um, becomes central for you in that that context. At that conference, which I've become very fond of and everyone I've met there— at that conference, you're assigned your topic. So mm. Sarah Bessie said, your topic is evolving faith in the wilderness. So okay. she either pegged me or was inviting me <laughs> to go back there. But you know, even the way you introduced this conversation earlier, I'd never really put together how many times I moved, how many churches I was in, how many vocations I've had. But there is a way in which... I have sought edges. They aren't always wilderness, but I have sought the edges of things, partly because I came in to the church from the edge. So yeah. I never I never was central to it and by being ordained went to the center. But I think in some ways when I look at my life, I, every time I've achieved competency in anything, I've left that and gone to do something <laughs> I didn't know how to do. And I don't know what that's about. Either the pressure of the competence or the expectation of it became too heavy or my brain was going to sleep and just doing what it knew to do to get acclimation. And it was time to go do something um, new again so I could be a beginner again. So that's not as far from wilderness as it maybe sounds. But talking to you, I realize wilderness is, for the most part, a comfortable place for me. As mm-hmm. as long as I still got a box of raisins, and as long as I can see the stars, <laughs> as long as you know water is within a day away, mm-hmm. so I I I live you know a, a a comfortable life. So it's careless of me to talk about wilderness when there are people who live in boy, you talk about an embodied experience who live in a real yeah. wilderness. But but at least theologically, I've been happy at the edges, and I've met people at the edges who are so much more interesting to me you know, mm-hmm. than people at the center. Or I've discovered by hanging out on the edges how edgy a lot of people at the center are but don't think they can talk about it 
and don't think they can let that out. So, right. so it, it, at least metaphorically, this has been a, a comfortable place for me. And it has helped a lot in whatever I'm writing about or talking about to help people, I hope, feel not so, um, what, so much like losers for being there. Mm-hmm. That because that, some some are in the wilderness because they got kicked out or or because right. they 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 left in a huff or in great pain or X Y or Z. But I appreciated the assignment because it gave me a chance to dig. What was that? Did anyone else hear a bell? No. Okay, I heard a bell. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. It was God. Where were we? <laughs> um, <laughs> we were in evolving uh, faith with these wonderful people. Like there were yes. thousands of them there. I was yes. completely floored. It reminded me of a time I was invited to England to the Greenbelt Festival, and I was—I'd yes. um, always been told, you know, England was post-Christian, nothing going on there, until I got to Greenbelt Festival, and there were goth masses at midnight. There were twenty thousand people at. Communion on Sunday morning, there was a pub called Jesus Arms, so you could tell people you were in Jesus Arms when you were drinking <laughs> beer. But it was Evolving Faith was my American version of that, of okay. just walking into this huge athletic rink and looking at all these people I did not know were a people, and they were a people. So, mm-hmm. so to... Um, Talk to wilderness with them was just a matter of kind of saying a blessing over the the wilderness they felt themselves in. And it it worked, I guess, because I got invited back one more time. Yeah. I mean, I think just to kind of, you know, really lay out what we're talking about or how you you talk about it, um, you know, it's, it's... it's places that show you how breakable you are, how breakable anything is. Wilderness is part of the human condition. You said, since we're working a metaphor here, let's stretch the wilderness to, inc- place, to include places where there are no mountains, lions, or bears. Have you ever mm-hmm. spent any time in the waiting room of a radiation oncology unit? There's mm-hmm. a wilderness for sure. So is mm-hmm. a neighborhood where parents have to teach kids what to do when they hear gunfire. A dying church is a wilderness. Addiction is a wilderness. Losing too many friends all at once is a wilderness, especially if they're young. Aging is a wilderness. Deep love for this suffering planet is a wilderness. Hmm. And how do you work with that spiritually, theologically? What does this mean in in your faith? It means that I get invited to places where social justice has become the communion table in the world for a lot of people Mm -hmm. who don't use communion table language. And I so admire the spirit and willingness of people of all ages to go get arrested for a good reason. You know, good trouble (laughs) is a, is a big phrase in Atlanta as well. And yet, yeah. (laughs) And I'm very aware that I've not been arrested yet. I tried to make a deal with my bishop to get arrested before we were both, you know, 75, but so far it hasn't happened. (laughs) So, so part of me, uh, when I, um, think about wilderness, I, I am very much available to be a companion in 
pretty middle-class, average wilderness that doesn't get a lot of um, posters held up about it because it's just Mm -hmm. aging. It's just being sick and maybe not getting well, and it's just losing love. And then finding it again. I'm learning to also be someone who can celebrate, you know, celebrate wonderful things in the wilderness or finding the way out for a while. But but I, I think I've accepted my role as being chaplain to people a lot like me, you know, who've mm-hmm. been lucky enough to get some higher education, who may own their homes, who've had jobs, who, you know, can get service most places they walk in because of how they look. But I'm aging now, and it, it occurs to me that's a great leveler. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something I never paid any attention to when I was young. I, I have to do everything I can not to just reach out and touch the faces of young people now and say, you're so beautiful. <laughs> do you have any <laughs> idea how beautiful you are? <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I'm I'm very taken right now with with that wilderness, but I'm I'm gonna I'm putting that in parentheses within. I think my chaplaincy in the wilderness is is to all the usual ways of being there, and not in in the ways that are making the headlines almost every day. And sometimes I feel bad about not being on those mm-hmm. front lines. I'm in the middle lines. There, you 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 write and speak really wonderfully about the wilderness in the biblical experience. Um, and I think, I think this becomes another place where these stories um, have a lot of, you know, incredible depth and edge and relevance um, for precisely 2023. Um, and people aren't learning, necessarily learning these schools, these stories. Mm-hmm anymore in churches and maybe they never learned them in this complex way to begin with. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, you talk about biblical figures. I mean, it, the wilderness is always there and it's again and again there in the in the Bible. And, and it's also in other kinds of sacred text. Um, you talked about biblical figures who went in heavy and came out light. You know, it's <laughs> often has deserts and mountains and clouds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I live in a I live in a part of the country. The South is rich in narrative, but also insistent on belief. And so it's interesting that a lot of those stories never come up, or when they come up, they are about underlining correct beliefs about things instead of about oh, getting a chill from the un- unknown in those stories. Uh, you know, in the wilderness, in the mountains, in the valleys, in the clouds. So I love, love retelling the stories with an eye to that, um, to what's often left out of the stories because it's scary, especially if you decide to go and not just to um, take a big heavy backpack with everything you'll need. That's what we learn how to do. But I said, heard you say that you don't speak about Christ anymore, but you're very happy to speak about Jesus. I mean, how do you I'm think thinking about the story of Jesus in the wilderness and that you and his and how people didn't understand the people around him didn't understand didn't understand what part didn't 
well, he's, he's somewhere you wrote, he, he didn't try to protect anyone from the wilderness, and they fell asleep, kept hoping he would make it go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And over and over again. I mean, it was just his M.O. I, I know everybody makes up their own Jesus in a way, but I just love the way he was disorienting people all the time. They kept asking him to nail a few things down. I won't even pursue that pun, but, but he... It, you know, they just wanted a straightforward answer, and then he'd tell a story, or he'd ask them a question, or he'd say, "Ah, oh, you know the answer to that." And he was just so—he had to be charismatically infuriating. But, but that's the Jesus I guess I have loved—is the one who won't give you a straight answer, but who kind of puts a hand on some part of your body and says, "But I'll—I'll I'll go with you. We'll, mm. We can go check it out." Hmm. Um, and then he makes that terrifying, you know, turn at the end where he's he's the one nailed down, and and who wants to go there? Always surprises hmm. me that I live among Christians who think that because he died that way, they won't have to. That <laughs> I don't know what happened hmm. to take up your cross, but it's really interesting how there's a disconnect there that somehow the manner of his death was so that we we do not suffer frightening things like that. I don't know where that came from, but I can't find it in my Bible. No. And what is this? What is this? If, if wilderness is part of the human condition, um, what what role does it play? What is it there for? Or what does it do in and for us when we encounter it? What's, what have you learned about that? Well, your ego will get a major thump. I think of wilderness as where you get a feel for your true size. It was the main gift of my leaving the city where I lived happily for 25 years to live in the country where I've now lived 30 years. Mm -hmm. And nothing where I live now is human scale. Everything in the city was human scale. Beautiful, fantastic buildings built by people and parks planned by people. But now I live without a single human-made thing visible off my front porch. So Mm. that's a very comfortable wilderness, but I'm very clear about my size in that scale. If it is a lost wilderness, one in which I'm lost, whether through illness or newness or travel, I learn how much I I need other people. I think of myself as a solitary, and yet wilderness is when I'm really desperate for a companion, for someone who knows the way, Mm -hmm. or at least Mm -hmm. someone to talk to at night and... Um, what else does wilderness teach? Wilderness, um, I, it's important for me to remember wilderness stories are only good if you make it out alive. Right. right I think often right. in the stories I was taught about Exodus, it was as if the people who went in were the people who came out, and that's not so. Generations no. perished in between. Even Moses didn't come out. I know, I know. And why don't yeah. we ever hear We don't that? tell that. <laughs> yeah. I know. And, and that's especially pertinent to now. I know so many people desperate to make a difference now, to turn things around now. 
And yeah. it's really hard to say, you know, it's possible we're part of a bucket brigade here and you got the bucket from somebody else and you're going to hand it on. And, yeah. w- you know, we'll only know the middle. We don't know. All we know are our middles in this. So so it's important for me also to remember that people perish in the wilderness. They're not yeah. just improved. People perish there. And with any luck, with any legacy, um, they make it possible for the next generation to go on with some kind of hope slash confidence slash courage slash willingness. Yeah. You 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 invited um at the for evolving faith you have invited this notion of this question of what a subsistence spirituality might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, a spirituality lean enough to live in the wilderness as long as necessary. Mm-hmm. I find that such an intriguing notion, a mm-hmm. lean spirituality, a subsistence spirituality. Say some more about that. Well, if you go in there with a fatter one than that, it will lose weight pretty quickly. And if you've got ideas about special protection, special license special whatever i think those get corrected so i'm i'm interested in uh by subsistence spirituality i think i mean one um that can find some way to open its arms to what's happening instead of insisting that it shouldn't be happening hmm. and and then I don't know, lean rations. I think I think another saying in the scriptures I love that never gets enough play is when Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. And yet I've never heard a sermon encouraging me to take on more spiritual <laughs> poverty. Right. <laughs> but I think I think there's something in this subsistence spirituality idea about what it means to be poor in spirit and I'm not even sure what that means, but he he seemed no, to think it was. No, what does that mean? I, I am puzzled over that. What does yeah. that mean? I, all I can figure is that in whatever congregation I am imagining or he imagined, there were some spiritual fat cats, you know, <laughs> hanging around, okay. kind of flaunting their goods, and and mm-hmm. that there were some people sitting a few rows behind them who said, "I am so inadequate. I am such a loser." Mm-hmm. And that there was some kind of bread being offered them to not compare themselves to those who seemed rich in spirit. That mm. um, that was Matthew's gospel, not Luke's. So I'm not sure he was thinking about money at that point. But there certainly is. I know a lot of people who believe they're spiritually rich, and God bless them. But. <laughs> But I really prefer the company of those poor in spirit. They're my pals, and they have really bad mouths on them, and I just love them for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, something that's interesting to me, I mean, kind of, you know, continuing this trajectory that we started on in the 1960s where you and I were both around, um, God was dead, I would say, I feel, I experience all the time, I feel like God is making a comeback now. <laughs> I, and now that, you know, with the way, what that word, what the, that very tiny word God means when different people mm-hmm. use it is, mm-hmm. of course, has as much variation as there are lives. Yes. 
but I feel like people are realizing, and I mean, the scientists are all kinds of people and all kinds of endeavors are realizing it's not a word we can do without. And it's also a word that has a lot of possibility in it. But now I think the headline, which would have been more shocking in the 1960s, is is perhaps the death of the church, right? And the Mm -hmm. emptying of church Mm -hmm. Mm post-lockdown. And so that third move of, of leaving church was keeping. And, you know, there's something interesting about the fact that you or, for example, those thousands of people you're talking about at the Evolving Faith Conference or at mm-hmm. the Greenbelt Conference, mm-hmm. it's like there's a there's absolutely a, 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 a critical distance from what seems to not have integrity. I think often what seems not to jive with with the best original impulses of the of church, mm-hmm. and yet there's it's 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 it's, it's um. There's there's something that stayed. You know, I I think of Bonhoeffer, right? In a very Mm -hmm. different situation, but talking about religionless Christianity where Mm -hmm. the church itself had been co-opted into essential evil. And yet he said there were were these – the core impulses um, would would persist even if Mm -hmm. the institution went away. And I – I I wonder if we are experiencing something like that. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by something you wrote from Christian Century about the poured out church. Mm-hmm. This was 2007, and it feels to me like maybe a way that you've been wrestling with this phenomenon um, for a little while with with kind of biblical language. I love everything you just said. <laughs> I would love to, yeah, I'd, I would love for you to just rewind and say it all again because I think <laughs> I think it is so true that people are talking about um, loss of faith, loss of God, and I think it's loss of church. I really think it's church that's suffering now, and it was suffering long before COVID put it in isolation, yeah. but I think a lot of people during that couple of years, I've talked to them, you know, who discovered either how eager they were to get back or that they weren't going back. So so I do think this is about church. And and I didn't understand Altizer this way and his colleagues. He wasn't the only guy. He just got famous for saying God is dead. But I remember not too long ago looking back into that theology again and realized that at least some of those people were talking about God emptying God's self into the world. Mm. And, and you know, that's a familiar thing for people who've been initiated into Christian language, that, that Jesus, you know, poured himself into the world, emptied himself into the world. So, so I do—I am intrigued by the idea of what it means for the church to be emptying now. And, and I mm. am still naive enough to believe— well, you just put me in company with Bonhoeffer. I'm not naive. I did. I that, did. Yeah. That, that, I mean, you didn't put me in that company. But when when you say that he thought the the impulse, I trust the Holy Spirit, Krista. That's where I'm still real religious is I still mm-hmm. trust that wind that blows things around. And you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it goes, but it it's going to blow. And mm. and it's um it's blowing all the time. And and. The interesting thing is people my age get so distressed by what it's blowing around. And then I meet younger people 
who are just comfortable with that. That's the way a lot of their lives have been. They never expected to have one job or live in one place or love one person or were not raised the way I am. But I, um, I, I think it's a, it's a terrifying time. There are a lot of buildings. There are a lot of pensions. There are a lot of people's invested lives that are being shaken. It is also a really exciting time to see what happens next. And mm-hmm. I won't. I won't know. You know, I I just um, had to work on a salt and light sermon, and and one thing that has something to do with what we're talking about is in Matthew five, which is Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus turns to the people and says, "You are the light of the world." And when I lay that beside what he says in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. It's just really fun to play with that. I, there's a way in which I can't get the chronology to work, but, you know, like, yeah, I'm the light of the world, but let's forget that for a minute. You you are. So let's forget about me. What are you all up to? You know, what's going on there? But the I, 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 I'm liking your emptying talk, and I don't think that's ending talk. I just think it's emptying. And there's no room to pour anything new into a full cup. And I also feel like there's a way in which you have worked with this very concretely in your life, kind of in ministry, out of ministry. I mean, so here's something you wrote in that Poured Out Church piece in 2007. The world is where my notions of God have been destroyed, reformed, chastened, redeemed. The world is where I have occasionally been good for something and where, where, and where I have done irreparable harm. The reason I know this, however, is that the church has given me the eyes with which I see, as well as the words with which I speak. Mm -hmm. The church has given me a community in which to figure out what has happened to me in the world. Hmm. Do you ever look back at things you wrote and think, (laughs) I I was so much smarter then? Well, no, but you write things and that you don't know where they come from, no. right? There's that mystery. Yeah. You said something that you didn't know you had to say. But mm. I mean, I think what that describes also is what is what people are still looking for. Mm-hmm. A, a relationship between the church and life as it is lived that works in that symbiotic and mutually enriching and mutually challenging way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... Um, and b- probably because I'm Episcopalian, and it, I, it seems sacramental to me that what we're looking for is some way in which our bodies, our hands, oil and water and bread and wine, all the ordinary things are given a bump up into holiness, or the holiness in them is mm. seen and held and passed around. And that happens That happens in, in this forgive me, in the saddest, most worn-out little churches, all you got to do, you know, is is bury somebody or marry somebody or, or take communion or lay on hands, and the whole thing seems like it's worth giving it another try. So right. sacrament, ritual, it's interesting, some of the, quote, secular books that are coming out now are about ritual. And, yeah, there's yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, speaking of ritual, I um, and this also kind of comes back to the theology that emerges beside a hospital bed. Um, just one of the things I'm thinking about a lot is how much kind of unmourned grief uh, the world is carrying right now, and 
so many, so many uh, I think there have been so many kinds of losses, right? And so many kinds of grief, including terrible, terrible loss of loved ones, of people um, in these pandemic years. And, and that is not, that is still happening. Um, and, and it seems to me that one of the things that's really glaring is that we, we don't know how to grieve or to mourn um, in, in American culture, for sure. And I wonder, you know, it's why I find, I find a, a word like lamentation also, it just is a different move. And um, I, I wonder if you've, I'm curious just for you as a priest, as a, as a theologian, as a writer, are there ways in which you think you know, um, what was that from what I just read you a minute ago, what the, what the church has given you um, that, that feels like could be an offering to this, to this world um, in terms of grief, lament, mourning? Mm. I've, I have an empty sack on that and I want to fill it. Mm. I mean, you just you just mm. uh, pointed me in a direction. I have experiences to report. I remember way back when Matthew Fox led some retreat in the mountains of Pennsylvania and led a bunch of us to a precipice where we beat drums and lamented, you know, what we were doing to the earth way back then and and I certainly have experiences of loud Funerals, and even I remember the women's march. There was huge mm-hmm. celebration and lamentation in that, but mm-hmm. there was something mm-hmm. so wonderful about all three of those things that, that just came to mind when you said that were communal. And then I think about other cultures that have much better, what, stylized rituals of lamentation than we do. But, but when, I mean, when you asked me, all I could go to was Ash Wednesday. And the season of Lent, yeah. which we're in, yeah. which is the way yeah. you know the church I know best has always insisted we lament for forty days every year, and and that we confess sin, not not our own only, mm-hmm. but but the mm-hmm. sins of all. You know, some some guy the other day was complaining that he had to say the confession of sin because he said, "I don't do any of that stuff." <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that, oh, good for you. But yeah. I always had some sense in which we were saying, you know, we, we. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, mm-hmm. but the, Lent, the season mm-hmm. of Lent, you know, for anyone who's listening to us, gives us 40, 40 days every year and asks us to live a more subsistent spirituality and yeah. and consider our true size in the universe. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and to grieve. And it I guess part of the resistance is that is that supposed to be self punitive or I have to come up with a long list of why I'm bad? No. I mean so much of what yeah. you're talking about, what what is calling for our lamentation is so global. Yeah. I think Judaism Jewish tradition does this. I mean there's there um I mean, the, you know, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? There are these, also these very deep rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And, mo- I, and mourn- I talked to... Go ahead. Sorry, go on. Uh, and mourning a death for a full year. I lived next door yes. to a, yes. Yes. an Orthodox um, Jewish family once and was amazed that the eldest son for one year went every day to mm-hmm. shul to pray for his dad. 
right in the middle of the pandemic, I mean, like 2020, I was, I was talking to some rabbis, you know, on Zoom, and um, they were talking about how, you know, that the rituals around lamentation actually were originally meant not to be internal to, to a synagogue, but communally offered. And I just, mm-hmm. I just thought, what if we had that? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if we had that in our midst? If it was, even if, if it was all the synagogue, like offering up these communal rituals of lamentation, mm-hmm. um, how that would help. What could we create yeah. together? This could be our landmark show. We're going to create create a new lamentation movement. Well, let's throw this proposal out into the into the world of listening. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I've loved. Also, I was really happy my producer um, put for me to look at in preparation this 1999 essay you wrote on physics called The Luminous Web, also in Christian Century. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I do. Or is that also your... I do, but I feel yeah. like I'm on a PBS show here with you. <laughs> You're finding all these hidden ancestors and bringing them yeah, out, well, or things I buried so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was so beautiful. I'm just going to read one of the things you said. That she was. You were just, I mean, you were talking about the evolution of science and, 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 and then of physics in particular. The deeper revelation of physics in our time, and it has just kept going in that way that was evolving right at the end of the 20th century. The deeper revelation is one of undivided wholeness in which the observer is not separable from what is observed, or in Heisenberg's words, the common division of the world into subject and object, inner world and outer world, body and soul is no longer adequate. And then you said, is this physics or theology, <laughs> science or religion? At the very least, it is poetry. Mm. <laughs> it, but that was such a a heady time when yes. I think a lot of people were finding huge company in at least what they thought um, theoretical physics was teaching, you know, that there was just jaw-dropping awe. And it turned out to be true for scientists as well. That the things they yes. were discovering just couldn't couldn't be true, couldn't be true, and were. But yeah, I remember I remember that time, and it it I think through the web, the web telescope now it's kind of these good things cycle. There's there's been a new dose mm-hmm. of awe as mm-hmm. we've seen further than we've ever seen. Hmm. Yeah, I wrote that book because I live in a county. Uh, a red rural county where I was just tired of seeing license plates. Like there'd be a fish on a bumper sticker and then there'd be Darwin eating the fish and there'd be a fish eating Darwin eating the fish. And you just, I'm watching <laughs> science and religion play itself out mm-hmm. hostily on bumper stickers all over my county. Mm-hmm. So I decided to to try that small book it, to, to be at least a, a pastor trying to hear not what I thought the physics were saying, but what they thought they were saying, and then just be awed by it. Well, and and the richness and the mystery, mm-hmm. um, as you say, even to scientists themselves, of these developments is so not translated mm-hmm. and not translatable onto a bumper sticker in any form, right? It's just... Mm. Well, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It is. It is miraculous, actually. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. And reverence comes in again there big time, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. lamentation, I'm going to think a lot about that. Thank you for planting that because I don't think I've done a lot, you know, with or around that probably because I, like a lot of people, oh gosh, I feel like I'm assaulted almost every minute of my life. It's one reason I'm not on social media and I'm confessing in public I don't check the news more than twice a day is I'm just so reluctant to get the kinds of calluses I would need on my ears and my heart. I want the news to break my heart, you know? I want personal attacks to wound me, but there's a way in which the way we do information now, Hmm. I'm just always trying to protect (laughs) my heart. So so it's lamentation must be a place that is calling to me, and I'm saying, I already have enough of that, and they're saying, no, you haven't come far enough yet. (laughs) Well, I hope you'll let me know what, if something comes of that, I'd like to know if this conversation planted a seed. I mean, I'm curious, what are you? Where are your peregrinations taking you these days, spiritually? I'm just finding out, because for two, three years. It's three years now, right? I mean, I remember coming home like everybody does on one weekend in March 2020 mm-hmm. and realizing I was going to be home for a while. So, you to be home, yeah. And that was a, it was, it was a wonderful um, couple of years, horrible, wonderful, horrible, wonderful years. But what was wonderful for me, and I, I feel like it's important for those of us who experienced um holiness in that time to say that along with all that needed to be lamented. But I I came home for the first time in about 30 years and just looked around my house and sat down with my husband who said, you're finally going to pay attention to me. And we started (laughs) eating every night dinner together and I wasn't gone all the time. And so I'm just coming out of that, which is I've just begun doing a little peregrinating again, and I want to keep my finger on it so that it does not become addictive or whatever it was. It was too much. Yeah. I'm trying to yeah. avoid the too muchness. And I think you now yeah. I've got the white hair and the digits in my age to say, I'm just too old to do that anymore. <laughs> So, I think that's a very succinct, uh, a succinct way of talking about the lesson that many of us learned about through in these last years of you know on the on the positive side of the ledger where there was one mm-hmm. is, is resisting too muchness, mm-hmm. the too muchness, and even from you know seeing it for the first time, it's a way in which you you don't know how wet mm-hmm. it is till it stops raining, and you think, oh, yeah, but yeah, the too muchness. Especially with our information webs, is just easy to fall for. I I often complain that our informational networks give us the omniscience of God without any omnipotence to go with it. Mm. So it's mm. hard to bear sometimes. Mm. I mean, after all that wandering in your the first few decades of your life. Um, you've now lived in two houses in 36 years. Is that right? I wrote, so you said you live in a mostly small town in northeast Georgia that Georgians can't find on a map. <laughs> yep, I reversed my early childhood. I've moved twice in <laughs> twice in 30 years. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and is it? Go ahead. 
No, keep going. Oh, I was just thinking, too, I, you might be about to get there because you're incredibly intuitive. You, I usually start preparing my sentence and then you say it. And I, <laughs> uh, but I, my peregrinations are taking me uh, um, to about 30 feet out from my house. I mean, I, I, I read mm-hmm. somebody who said, oh, I traveled last summer. I made it halfway across my yard. And, and I think my <laughs> peregrinations now are going to be along the lines of this professor at Sewanee I just read who found a little, little plot of land near the university and just visited it every day for about a year and just paid attention to what was happening with the moss and the foliage and the insects and the sunlight. And the, so that, I, think, I think my peregrinations are becoming very local. You think that's a lovely gift of of growing older that what is what is novel becomes less energizing and what is ordinary becomes more energizing mm-hmm. that is so true and i saw that when i was younger as a what a kind of um surrender on the part of older people ah oh, poor th- yeah. poor things they can't tra- thing. travel yeah. like they used yeah. to I, their knees probably hurt it's just <laughs> so sad and now i'm beginning yeah. to realize it's priorities, man. You learn what matters uh-huh. and what doesn't. And getting one more stamp in my passport would be fabulous, but uh-huh. that's just not my highest priority anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is it true that you've become a maker of wind times? Oh, I'm so embarrassed that you said that. Yes, I love it. <laughs> the world does <laughs> not the world does not need more wind chimes, but but I badly <laughs> But is it bringing you joy? <laughs> oh, it's it, it is so wonderful and I have so many scars. If we were together, I'd show you. I keep forgetting I'm working mm-hmm. with glass and then you know, I just keep mm-hmm. band-aids and alcohol. Near my work. This is your version of an edge now, is your glass you're cutting your hands on. (laughs) It was just so much fun after a lifetime of working with words and thoughts to start working with glass and color and Mm -hmm. sound and and yeah, this is just colored glass. A a friend of mine, I kind of piggybacked on her, she calls it suspended art. So Mm -hmm. she's a trapeze artist actually. So I saw her work and started copying it. So, yeah, one of my favorite things to do is this Thursday I volunteer at Hemlock Gallery in Little Clarksville, Georgia, where I'm one of 30 artists in northeast Georgia. We are not craftspeople. We are artists, and we have our stuff Mm -hmm. there. So it's been great fun. I love that. So I think my final question to you is a question that you describe being asked for the first time. I think it was... A, some a, maybe a priest who invited you to speak at his church, mm. and you said, "What do you want me to talk about?" And they said, "Why don't you just talk about what is saving your life right now?" Mm. Um, and that that became a question that you that you found valuable, also in keeping to asking yourself and asking others. So, if I ask you that question today, like, what is what is saving your life right now? Many things, and we've talked about a lot of them. That was John Claypool, also a blessed memory, who asked me that question. I love the right nowness of it, Krista. I think that's the answer. What's saving my life right now in my early 70s, married to a man who turns 86 next month, um, going to more funerals than baptisms, <laughs> uh, with all that we've talked about that there is to lament right now has become a place where I can find every day great joy, 
if I don't get too ahead of myself. If I get way ahead of myself, I'll need to take more drugs or something. But if I can stay, <laughs> if I can stay right now, there is something every single day that is worth staying alive for and worth increasing the life available to everything and everyone about me within a you know a local radius. So what's saving my life right now is this locality I've been talking about. I am at this moment a better grandmother, aunt, sister, spouse than I've ever been by my own measure because I'm attending in ways I have not attended. Um, so what's saving my life right now is the old mantra of staying in the present as best I can and being amazed that life as it unrolls every single day is more than scenery as I rush from here to there, that it's the real deal. <laughs> you know, what what happens bit by bit by bit, whether it's making a bed for a guest coming and anticipating what we'll eat or it's um, planning, you know, what I want to do at the public library. I'm a, a, a terrible volunteer. I don't show up nearly often enough, but I, I <laughs> every day, every day, attending to the every day, and it's, it is such a cliche almost now, but I think it must be because it's true. So what's saving my life mm -hmm. right now is being in here right now as best I can. And for this past hour and a half with you, it's been great, hasn't it? Well, yeah, and you've taught me you a know, few this... things. I mean, I've got to go, but this is as good as psychotherapy, really. I mean, you, you pulled this is better than psychotherapy because it doesn't give me this kind of scope and range. And from okay. 1999 to now, I'm gonna go home and oh, rethink. Oh, great. I'm gonna go home and rethink my life. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm so happy. Let me let me just. I just I do want to ask you before you know just this question. You've 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 asked and played with and mulled over again and again across the years about and where's god in all of this and where's god in all of this so like how do you how do you and i know that i know that how you think about that and and what the answers are if you'd even call them answers have evolved with time but how do you think about how how does that question eve what is the form that question takes now in this now I'm going to give you an image, and it's just going to be so strange to some people. But I have um, I keep a small altar in my room, and it's it's like the holy everything. There, I mean, there's Mary, there's the Trinity, there's Jesus. It's um, a heart someone carved for me. It's a chestnut, but I I, I greet that crowd at night, and it's been. Amazing to hear the prayer change from speaking to them as outside of me to saying things like, thank you for letting me be with you today. Thank you for being in me. Thank you for letting me be in you today. Thank you for... I have this odd sense that what was outside has become very inside and that whatever I mean by God is as my Muslim friends say, as close to me as the heartbeat in my neck. I mean, yeah. that that's how close God is to me now. So we'll see 
how that seems at the hour of my death, but at this moment it seems for me, not against me. They seem for me, not against me. And and I suppose the, the more embodiment means to me, the more I'm concerned about what happens when this body goes. But faith has never been more important, which is, I don't know, and I'll go anyway. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Um, and there's, I mean, I, I wandered into so much um, in preparing that we didn't even get to talk about. So I think we'll have to have a meal somewhere someday. I'd love it. I'd okay. love it. Thank Blessings. you so much for the time, yeah. Krista. And we'll let you know. This will be airing in, a, I don't know, I think in April, but um, we'll let you know. And uh, yeah, just thank you. Thank you. Same here. Okay. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, wait. Bye. Is Chris, do you need? No. We're okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. You're done with me. Yes. Please cut out all the stupid parts, okay? <laughs>